some way in life, our biggest project is always ourselves, right? We're the thing that's growing, the things that we're always working on. So let me ask you a warm-up question today. Here's your warm-up question to get your brain juices flowing. What's one thing uh, you're working on these days? What's one thing in your life that you're working on these days? I'm just going to give you eight seconds to think about it and be brilliant. But just one thing in your life that you're working on these days. Think it through. All right, somebody tell me. What's something that you're working on? If, if you can share it. Your attitude. Attitude is the most contagious thing about you. It's the start of most good things. What else? Going to sleep when the baby goes to sleep. Yes, young moms, young dads, amen. That's brilliant. You have to restructure your life according to the life and blessing around you. That's great. What else? Yeah. Trying to spread the gospel again. The youth are the best Christians, right? They're, and doing a fairly good job of it uh, by all reports. Aaron Yamamoto. Uh, what else? That's, these are good. Yeah, Mike. To improve your diet. It's not even New Year's yet. And Mike is trying to improve his diet. That's fantastic. It is, of course, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Uh, when we tend to think about dietary resolutions. What else? Who's got some good ones? Self-discipline. Sure. Yeah. Easy to discipline others. Uh, yeah, Dave. Working on grace. Trying to be more kind and understanding uh, to those around you. Sure. All right. One more. Who's got the best one? Yeah, in the back, Jess. Hearing God's voice. That's a good one. Every relationship involves conversation, and our relationship with God involves conversation with him. All right, you guys are great. We're in this sermon series uh, called uh, There is a God and His Ways Are Smart. Not my best title ever. Uh, but we've been talking about uh, what I, I think has been a very heartbreaking situation uh, in the world over the last uh, three or four years uh, that was just been spiritually tough times in the world, right? Um, uh, during this period, uh, church attendance in our country has gone down by around half. Uh, and part of it was the shutdown, but as the country has opened up again, you know, attendance has, has, not, uh, has not come back. People are struggling to hold together faith communities uh, like this one. Uh, and personally, just in my own sphere, I, I know hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of Christians who just bought the farm uh, during the last three or four years because society has become just very, I don't know, I guess toxic for faith or something. Um, and there have been a lot of, uh, uh, I think, well, attacks on, on believers uh, and the faith. And we've talked about some of them in the course of this sermon series, ways that souls die or are taken out. Uh, and so we began the sermon series by just, you know, going through some fundamentals, like good reasons to believe that there is a God, because I think the world is uh, a lying and controlling cult. Uh, it has been a lying and controlling cult throughout history. The Bible has a lot to say about that, uh, about, you know, Satan being the father of lies, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one, the Apostle John tells us. And and so, so on and so forth. You know about this. The world likes to control. 
uh, and, and to do it uh, through deception and through fear. There have been lots of lies coming at us and lots of fear coming at us. Um, by and large, it has really hurt uh, people's faith, but I think it's all unmerited. And if you just keep track of some fundamentals, really calmly think through some things, remember some things, then it's not so hard to stand against the tides of the world because believers have been doing it for over 2,000 years now. It's kind of what we do. So the sermon series, there is a God and his ways are smart. Uh, the last half of the sermon series, we're just talking about some of God's ways as they stand in contrast to some of the world's ways. We've talked about things like money, right? Uh, the whole world uh, is money sick without realizing it. And Jesus talked about money way more than he talked about any other single moral issue in the Gospels. He was just on about it, not because money is the most important thing in the world, but because money is the way that the world tends to get at us. Uh, so he inoculated us against that. We talked about hope last week because I think we've been in uh, a season in which hope has become... Uh, unpopular, right? Hopelessness, uh, fright, fear uh, has become the power uh, that people respect. To be hopeful, positive, expectant has been to be accused of naivete or or worse uh, in the world. So we talked about the power of hope and what it means last week, uh, something that's really powerful to me. Uh, And this week I want to talk about Another big moral issue of the day, which is the issue of sexuality over the past, uh, you know, five, six, ten years uh, particularly, there's, there really hasn't been a larger moral issue in, let's just say, Western society than uh, sexuality and all that goes in it, right? We got just... I guess you'd call it maybe conventional sexuality, the conventional family, which has been under attack in various ways. And then you've got, I guess you might call it unconventional sexuality, whether it be homosexuality or transsexuality. And now we've got all sorts of alphabetic names uh, for different versions of it. Uh, And that's been a huge issue in all media, in all education, in all politics, in all entertainment, all art, right? everywhere you go. It's a really big thing. It remains sort of a difficult thing to talk about. You know, it's hard for a pastor to stand up in a church and talk about uh, sex. Um, But I try to do it at least once a year because the world is really trying to get at everyone uh, this way. It's become a huge topic. There's a lot of pressure around sexuality today and a lot of challenge around sexuality today coming at us and coming at our young people Uh, And it has had an unbelievably huge effect. Unbelievably huge effect. Um, As you know, I'm kind of a geek uh, and a social scientist by training. Um, So, you know, I've been following the stats on this probably for 35 years now. Um, So all the major studies uh, ever done on... I don't even know what the name is these days, but let's call it alternate sexualities. Homosexualities, for instance, uh, has shown uh, that constantly through the generations, as far back as we can measure, like the rate of homosexuality in general populations runs at about 1.3%. And then during my generation, generation X and a little bit after that, um, depending on where you were, it was bumped up to close to 2% in some places. Uh, During the past... In the past um, just five years, it's gone from like one and a half to two percent to now 
25% of millennials identify as something other than just heterosexual. One out of four. One out of four. The effect has been astonishing. Astonishing. And you have to take a look at that and think, well, that is a heck of a transition in like human society. Right? And that, that's a heck of a transition. Uh, and we could talk about like, well, what in the world drives something like that? Um, and, and get into it. But my general point is like, that's a sea change in human society uh, uh, right there. Uh, it was a big issue uh, for me uh, beginning when I went to college, but it is a much bigger issue for any kid in college these days. A much, much bigger issue. And so I would just like a sensible, compassionate, reasonable way to talk about it. Uh, and I feel like we need to be able to do that as a, a family of, of faith. One of the things that really interests me about the sexuality movements today is how deeply spiritual it is. Have you thought about this? You thought, I mean, this, this really kind of impresses me. Like, I, it, it's fascinating, and it leads to some fascinating conversations. For a person, like a person who, would say, is biologically male, to say, oh, but I'm really a woman, that is a fundamentally spiritual statement. Right? Because obviously there's no biology in it. Uh, they're saying that there's something about me as a person that transcends my biology. Which is interesting and just a little bit constructive, actually. Right? Because you can have a spiritual conversation uh, about that. We don't usually have those spiritual conversations. We usually have, I don't know, political conversations or, or sometimes even scientific conversations. I'll get into the science of it in a second. Um, but, but it's an interesting time to have spiritual conversations about sexuality. And I hope that's heartening for the people of God. And I hope that's encouraging uh, for, for you guys. I mentioned that college was a really significant time. I went to uh, kind of a, a big college um, out of a small town, um, and uh, as soon as I got to campus, um, it was clear to me that sexuality was going to be a big issue. And I was a freshman, I was living in a dormitory, uh, Sony and I went to Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. And, uh, and during the weekly orientation, when the freshmen arrived at the campus, residential education bureaucracy set representatives uh, to train kids in how to explore their sexuality during their college years. That was part of the training. Uh, and I remember I was like one of like two Christians in the house, and uh, the other was uh, a woman. And during this orientation, they were kind of misquoting scripture, and it made her really angry, and she was charged with bigotry and hatefulness. And this was like, you know, in the mid-1980s. And it was all just such a powerful lesson for, for me, just this little country kid. I was like, what is this? Right? I didn't deal with this in high school. Now every single high schooler deals with this. Uh, but I'm going to figure it out, is what I said to myself, because that was very much my spirit. Um, I was invited to attend the Gay and Lesbian Alliance at Stanford meetings as a seeker, which was great. Um, so I just showed up and I started having conversations with people. I was welcomed for about nine or ten weeks, twelve weeks maybe, before they just determined that I was not in fact gay. Uh, and then, and then nobody, and no one would talk to me again. Uh, and so they weren't all that, that secret friendly. Um, but I, I learned so much and, and, and 
I started talking to all these people who felt homosexually oriented but did not necessarily want to be homosexually oriented. They were confused. And back in those days, it was actually legal to be confused. You didn't have to pick a side necessarily right off, right off the bat. And so I just started experimenting. Well, people would come to me and say, you're interested in these topics. Like, I'm attracted to, to men. I don't want to be attracted to men, would say a guy friend of mine. What do I do? And nobody had a ready answer. Uh, and so I just started like, well, I don't know. Let's, let's pray together. <laughs> let's invite the Holy Spirit to come and, and to see what would happen. And I had some you know, fairly profound uh, encounters that way. There's one guy who actually ended up living with me who came to me. Uh, I was like, well, I really want help with this. God has told me to live with you. That's what he said. I was like... Uh, okay, I guess he can do that. I'm not really sure. Uh, but come on, you know, I was living in a really dangerous ghetto at the time. He moved in, and this other guy uh, also had a homosexual orientation, and we were doing justice ministry to crack addicts and violent criminals out of my living room. That was just a really interesting time in my life. Can I say that? Um, and uh, we were at church one day, and this guy uh, who had come out of a super hyper-promiscuous gay lifestyle came up to me, tapped me on the shoulder, this guy that was living with me, and said, God says you're to pray with me right now. And I said, well, dude, I guess you're in charge. So I took him to the back of the room, and I just started praying with him. He fell down unconscious and just uh, basically was delivered of something. Uh, woke up two hours later, and the next day came to me and said, I'm different. I don't know what happened, but I'm different. And then he started like, studying like, what a healthy sexuality was, which is always step two, yeah? Uh, and this day, is, he married a gal. I was a, a former lesbian, in fact. And uh, they're just, like, just the loveliest family. They've got, I think, it's three kids now and just have been living joyfully ever since. Um, you think, well, that sounds like a rare experience. I had probably 50 of those experiences in four years. Um, and what it taught me is that people can change, right? No matter what lifestyle you're locked into. Now, maybe you're locked into a promiscuous homosexual lifestyle. Maybe you're locked into a promiscuous heterosexual lifestyle, right? Maybe you're just locked into a lifestyle that's all about pornography or something like that. You can change anything, right? And that's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. In fact, if you die there's a chance we can resurrect you today, right? Anything can change. And that's the fundamental that I want to get across. Unfortunately, the opposite is true. Well, you could be living a moral, conventional, I don't know, what is that, like heterosexual lifestyle, and you can change that if you want to. You can veer off course and go into any manner of sexual practices that are unhealthy. And so what is incumbent upon every individual is just to figure out how to live a healthy sexual lifestyle. And hopefully to do that with freedom and choice and the power and guidance of God behind you. And somehow it's become unfashionable to say that and to talk about that today. And I just need that to change. I need that to change. Even back then in the 80s, early 90s, where I was trying to figure this thing out, just some punk kid uh, from the country right, bringing helping to bring God's change sexually uh, to people uh, in the world, it was very dramatic for me. It was very challenging. Uh, eventually, I, I met some other people who were doing similar ministry, and I just learned so much. But at one, 
a particularly trying time. I remember this young lady walked up to me. She was like, I don't know, like maybe four or six years older than I was. Uh, she had been living a lesbian lifestyle, and she had come out of it, and it kind of watched me and kind of been part of the same ministry that I was a part of. She pulled me aside one day. I didn't, I didn't really even know her that well, but I prayed with her, and she said, look, Jordan, you're doing some crazy stuff. And I just want to tell you, don't ever stop doing it. And then she walked away. It's like, I'll remember that till the day I die. You know, because there are people out there that need some help. And they need us to be bold and to be uh, courageous. And, and, and we can be that even if we're young and don't know what we're doing. Or old and don't know what we're doing. Uh, because we bring the light uh, of the gospel uh, to the world. I mourn, I am brokenhearted that people are getting convinced that they cannot choose their sexual life. Because that is wrong. That is enslavement. That is foolishness and ill health. So, yeah, change anything about you you want to. Um, work on it, and you can go some interesting places. My goal is free individuals. The actual free individual, the actual individual is the rarest creature on earth. But that's the creature that God is trying to make. Uh, demons try to control you and to make a puppet out of you. The Holy Spirit tries to restore your self-control. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. God does not give you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of uh, power, sound mind, and self-control. Yeah, God gives us self-control. He's not trying to control us. He's not a puppeteer. Um, sin uh, is the puppeteer. So I'm trying to make free individuals. The first thing we try to remember about ourselves, humanity, uh, is encoded in the story of the Garden of Eden. The first thing humanity tried to remember about itself and has passed down through every subsequent generation is that at the in the beginning, when we walked well with God, there was an idyllic world, a garden, and in that garden were two trees, and there was a choice between them, life or sin. The first thing humanity tried to remember about itself was that we are creatures of choice. And as in the Garden of Eden, you know, the serpent, the deceiver comes along and tries to, tries to screw up our choices. Anyway, so I'm just trying to restore uh, choice uh, to people. Uh, the evolution of sexual politics in society today has all taken away choice. I mean, that's kind of the goal of it. That's what the world is trying to do. First is trying to take away the choice that you have in your self-understanding. Uh, uh, the world is trying to convince you that you're just born this way, to quote that famous theologian, Lady Gaga. <laughs> and you're just born this way. You can't help it. You have to just deal with it, and everybody around you has to deal with it. Genetics is God. Genetics is not God. Uh, and we'll talk about that in, in a second. But also, uh, the world is trying to take away uh, your choice through intimidation and accusation. Like if you question sort of the dominant world philosophy to do with sexuality, the world doesn't just tell you that you're wrong. The world tells you that you're evil, that you're a hater. Uh, you get deplatformed on YouTube and stuff like that. Uh, and so through intimidation and through you know, f falsehoods, uh, the world is trying to convince you that you have no choice. And, and we're even seeing you know, laws like, well, 
doesn't matter what you think about uh, transsexuality. In some places, if you're not willing to use uh, very recently invented pronouns uh, that sort of map to uh, the transsexuality movement, uh, then you can be fired from your job, uh, you can be fined thousands of dollars, and you can even be imprisoned. Uh, uh, famous examples include like the Ottawa Human Rights uh, Code uh, in Canada, uh, or uh, New York Metropolitan Laws uh, about pronouns. Um, uh, the last thing Barack Obama did before he left office was uh, he had an executive order that said bathrooms have to be uh, multi-gender, and if you as an institution do not abide by that, you are at risk of losing your federal funding. And then that kind of became a big deal um, during the Trump administration. We never voted on that. It was just sort of like this presidential fiat. There's been some aggressive moves forward in that way. Society has not even had a chance to talk about things uh, reasonably. Um, there are all these punitive laws in California right now. If, if your kid is sexually confused, doesn't know if he or she is a he or she, or doesn't know whether he or she is attracted to someone of the same sex or, um, or not, you can't take that kid to therapy. That's considered criminal. And there have been parents, kids taken away from parents now uh, because of that. So it's become quite aggressive um, because sexuality is being treated as identity. The way you feel sexually right now is your identity. And for me to say otherwise is a criminal offense, according to some laws. They're not by any means universal now, right? But I just want to say that sexuality is not identity. And there's a falsehood that I will live and die on. <laughs> sexuality is not identity. What's your identity in Christ? Pop quiz. We talk about this sometimes. What's your identity? Anybody know? Child, that's right. The only thing the Bible ever says, the Bible ever says about our identity is that we are children. Uh, as it says in uh, letters from, uh, from John, First uh, John, uh, we do not know what, we'll be, what we will become. We only know that when we see him, we will be like him. So it's a statement of, of, of being a child. I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. All I know is that when I grow up, I'll look a little bit like my parents. Right? And so there's a spiritual analogy. You don't know what you are. You're changing every day. Who are you to kind of define what you're going to be in the future? You haven't even seen God in his full form yet. Right? Uh, so we're all changing. We're all growing up. Right? We all are uh, ascending towards some image. And, uh, you know, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived what the Lord has in store. All these scriptures about this. We're becoming something. Uh, that we can only uh, guess at. My job is to remind everyone that they're human. My job is to remind everyone that they have choices. My job, where sexuality is concerned, is to remind everyone that it's a complicated field and that we have to work at being healthy. We're not just born some way. All right, that's my job. But let's start uh, talking about grace first before we get into the science. I'll try to progress through this pretty quickly because we had a lot of business to do early uh, in the sermon. Grace is the cardinal Christian virtue. It's the thing that's most unique about Christianity, and it's the hardest thing to understand. The thing about grace is that you have a clear standard on one side and radical generosity on the other. And you need to do both. You need to be very clear about the truth and very generous about how it's applied. Almost too easygoing. 
And grace is what got Jesus killed. He was a very righteous dude, uh, but he was killed by religious experts who thought that he was a licentious playboy because he looked overly generous. Grace is hard even for Christians to understand because it seems like grace offends God. You know, if we're lax with standards of sin and truth, that offends God, we are taught. Uh, But I don't think it does. Uh, You know, we need to have a really clear standard. We need to know what the truth is, and we need to be very gracious about the way that we apply the truth, as David was speaking about uh, in his response uh, earlier. Um, So let's talk about grace and divorce. I always think that this is a good way to start a talk about sexuality, or I guess we're halfway through now, to clarify a talk about sexuality. The Bible says that God hates divorce. Very clear about that. Book of Malachi. God hates divorce. There are a lot of people here who are divorced. And I think the church has learned to have a fairly healthy attitude toward divorce. Even though we know that it's wrong and that God does not like it, we have learned to accept it, not to promote it, in fact, to try and prevent it, but then also to help people recover from it if it happens. We've, we've I think, triumphed in this area, right? We, we hold the truth pretty clearly, but we also have a lot of grace and compassion for people who don't quite live up to the standard of faithfulness and longevity in, in marriage. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that's a way that a lot of us have fallen short of, of the glory of God. Malachi says, the man who divorces his wife, does violence to the one he should protect. <sighs> right? It's pretty, pretty straightforward. In fact, I think the opposite is probably true as well. The wife who divorces does violence to the guy, but in those days, only the guy could execute the divorce. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Yet God allows divorce, like in Deuteronomy 24, it explains that if you divorce someone, you have to do it with a certificate. You have to make it official. You have to be as gracious about it as possible. In Mark 10, uh, the religious expert of Jesus' day come to him and ask him a question about divorce. Divorce was the big moral issue of Jesus' day. It was the homosexuality issue of Jesus' day, divorce. It's actually the issue that got John the Baptist beheaded because he spoke out against divorce and Herod uh, and remarriage and, and Herod uh, killed him for it. Well, actually, Herod's new wife did. Um, uh, and so, because it was such a big volatile issue, it was such a political issue, they tried to trap Jesus about it. Um, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Mark 10, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Uh, do you think homosexuality is wrong or not? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus replies, It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. He's quoting Genesis here. And the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So he just kind of quotes scripture, which they all should have known. The ideal, of course, is no divorce. But Jesus says, God allows it because he knows your hearts are hard. He knows you're not going to live up to the ideal. And so God is willing to make some plan Bs for you to make sure that everybody stays alive and doesn't just kill each other, right? There's some marriages where it's like, you know what mercy would be? Mercy would be, you guys need to go your separate ways. And that's actually a very godly attitude, 
right? We don't want to be flippant about it. We don't want to be casual about it, but we don't want to be, you know, too legalistic about it. Uh, we want to be kind and compassionate and generous. It's grace. You understand? Everybody, snap your fingers if you understand. All right, so I think this is just a great attitude to have about all of these big moral issues, a grace attitude. We need to understand what the, what the standard is about sexuality. And, and scriptures are very clear. Sexual, I don't know, what do we call them today? Alternate sexualities. Uh, scripture says that alternate sexualities are a bad idea. Namely, they say that, uh, that it is unhealthy, right? The ideal is, is sort of stated like, you know, man, a woman, lifelong faithfulness, stay chaste until you're married. It's, you know, basically conservative moral values work best for society. Um, that's kind of what Scripture says pretty clearly. And Scripture is not unclear about it. There's a lot of revisionist Bible teaching these days that says, oh, well, the Bible doesn't actually forbid sexuality or alternate sexual or homosexuality or alternate sexualities, but actually the Bible's not clear. The Bible mentions it 11 times, if, if you want to know. Genesis 19, Leviticus 8, Leviticus 20, Judges 19, 1 Kings 14 and 15, 2 Kings 23, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians Timothy 1 and Jude 7. And in every one of those instances, the Bible is very clear. Don't do this. Don't walk down that path. It is not going to go well for you or for society if you allow it. The Bible is very clear about that. Um, my favorite example is actually an old one. The language is a little bit archaic, but from Leviticus 18. I just want to read one this morning. So that you get the feel for how God talks about sexuality in the Bible. Um, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I'm the Lord your God. Me, I'm the Lord. I'm the guy who knows. So please listen up. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. Um, and some of these practices were reprehensible even by today's standards, uh, involving, you know, ritual uh, orgies of various sorts and baby sacrifices and things. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. Again, I'm the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the man who obeys them will live by them, will stay alive. Uh, I'm the Lord. There's a lot of I'm the Lord's in there. There's a lot of like, look, trust me on this. That's what he's saying. Uh, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I'm the Lord. No incest. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. Like, he actually had to say that. Uh, she's your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. That would be like your stepmom. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. Uh, do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Well, yeah, like so far, like we all agree on this stuff. Do not have um, sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father. She's your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister, your aunt. Uh, she's your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister because she's your mother's close relatives. <sighs> it goes on. It's kind of creepy. Uh, do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She's your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Yeah. yeah. 
don't have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. Do not take your wife's sister uh, as a rival wife. Some of these places allow uh, polygamy. It's like, well, don't marry siblings. That would be awkward. Uh, and do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of a monthly period. There were a lot of bloodborne diseases, plus it was undignified, and there were customs to do with law, so that would be undisciplined. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife, and so defile yourself with her. Yeah, that one's in the Ten Commandments. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That's detestable. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal either to have sexual relations with it. These are perversions, or some translations will say these are confusions. People get confused about these things. That's what he says. The one that jumps out at me is like in the middle of this stuff about Devious sexual relations, the Lord says, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. So what they would do, and uh, the way they would worship the gods of Egypt and the gods of the Middle East, is that you would take a newborn, uh, and then there'd be this metallic, usually brass idol, and you would heat it up until it glows, and then you would throw the newborn on the idol and fry it to death, uh, and uh, praise your God as you did it. Um, so it's as if the Lord is saying, look, you might think you're getting into just sort of uh, harmless sexual practice, but I'm telling you, it leads to public murder of babies, you know, and, and you'll be worshiping something you do not want to worship. Uh, this is how the nations get defiled, is what it says. Like sex can defile an entire nation. That's how powerful it is. Sex can bring down a nation. Uh, is what the Lord says. So, Bible's pretty clear uh, about uh, stuff uh, like that. Um, if you're interested, science does not show uh, that alternate sexuality, you might say homosexuality, is genetic because that's the one that has been most studied. Um, so you're not born gay um, for what that's worth. I say for what that's worth is because even if some of our sexual behaviors are genetically encoded, it doesn't mean they are healthy or good. For instance, every man in the room is genetically encoded for polygamy, right? We uh, are designed, I won't go into the details, but we can, we can impregnate a woman every day. Um, we're sort of able to do that because of the way that we cycle hormonally. A woman can get pregnant once a month because of the way that women cycle hormonally. Are you following me? Because I, I didn't bring the chalkboard. And it's clear that, that uh, the sex drive of the male is a little bit different than the sex drive of the female. Until very recently, that was conventional wisdom. Um, but we do not encourage men to be promiscuous. We do not encourage men to impregnate as many women as they can. In the jungle, that's what animals try to do. But part of morality is transcending our animal nature. That used to be non-controversial. Um, and so, even though you know, I am hard-coded for uh, polygamy, I, I live contrary uh, to my genetic uh, programming. Um, so, it shouldn't matter a great deal. But just, there's this popular opinion that, that you're, people are born gay and therefore it's a civil rights issue. It's like skin color or something like that, which I think, again, reduces people to robots and I do not like it. 
first off, I don't, I don't even think there is such a thing as homosexuality. I think there are, are only homosexualities, right? Everybody has a slightly different version of it. And it's very interesting to me over the last, I've been saying this for like 30 years, but it's very interesting to me that uh, the gay rights movement is catching up with this because now there are dozens of different categorizations of sexuality. I think that's actually correct, right? But what it says is everybody's different. Everybody's working out their thing, right? Um, so there's no determinism in this. There's only individualism. Where are you at individually? How can I help you become healthier? How can you help me become healthier? That's what the conversation should be. Are you following that? Uh, in any case, so science certainly doesn't determine that homosexuality, even if you could give it one monolithic definition, uh, is, is inborn. But uh, more than that, science, I think, is, has, has really rather soundly proven that it's not genetically encoded. Some of my favorite studies, I've been following this hard for 30 years, so just to give you a, a few. Uh, 2012, there's a famous uh, University of Utah study, Lisa Diamond, I believe, is the researcher, uh, who found that two-thirds of self-labeled lesbian females were, in fact, uh, spending big chunks of their life not in the lesbian lifestyle. For, so particularly for women, orientation is quite fluid because it maps really closely to emotional mood in, in women, which, again, used to be non-controversial. Women like romance. Um, and so two-thirds of gay women are at least not gay uh, for big chunks uh, of their lives. Uh, and that was a big deal when she made uh, this discovery, uh, but then she became criticized for it. Uh, the guy uh, who uh, took homosexuality out of the psychiatric diagnostic manual, the guy who, who helped America understand that homosexuality should not be treated as a mental disease, it was a Columbia professor named Robert Spitzer. He did this in 1973, so he was really ahead of the curve on this. But in uh, 2001, he did, a, he did this follow-up study. He uh, interviewed like 200 people who had lived, 200 men, I believe it was, who had lived in a gay lifestyle, but then decided not to. And so he did intensive interviews with all of them. And this was a guy who was a very, very pro-gay rights advocate dude. And he determined, he published this uh, in a study presented to the American Psychiatry Association, um, and said that, well, actually, people can change, and we should probably recognize that, um, which created quite a stir, because this was Robert Spritzer, you know, this was like the big dude. Um, and, uh, but he was profoundly criticized and attacked for it. And then toward the end of his life, he, he apologized for it and said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I need, didn't mean to ruffle feathers. Um, but every study done on people who have transitioned uh, from one sexuality to the other has shown that it's actually quite possible, but hard, oftentimes. Uh, oftentimes hard. At this point in my life, I have walked with somewhere close to 90 people who have transitioned from one identity to another. So I, too, believe that it is quite possible if you want to go that route, you know, because you can change. Um, but in any case, I think the biggest argument for why you're not born gay, just to choose the phrase, is that it makes no sense whatsoever in terms of evolution and natural selection. Because 
this is what you learned about natural selection, if you can remember it. Uh, traits are selected by nature if they have a reproductive advantage, right? Because sexuality is very competitive, so we're competing to mate successfully in the world. Homosexuality is not a reproductive advantage. It only offers reproductive disadvantages. So it is not a trait that can be selected by nature. It is a trait that will always get selected out of the gene pool because it will not be passed on from generation to generation. Are you following me? Right? So it's not, it cannot possibly be binary like that. Um, I've never actually read a scientific study that said that, but it seems really obvious. I've asked professional geneticists about this, and most of them have said to me, I've never thought about that before. It's like, really? <laughs> because it's kind of like fact number one, right? How is this a reproductive advantage? Would be fact number one uh, for any, for any uh, geneticist. There have been all these studies that have garnered headlines. I can't go through them all uh, because uh, we're running late. Um, here's an example. A uh, 2003 uh, study published by UCLA Molecular Brain Research Department and Reuters, the news service, and all the, all the legacy media outlets reported it this way. This is what Reuters said. The study shows that sexual identity is wired into the genes, which discounts the concept that homosexuality and transgender sexuality is a choice, California researchers reported. That was the news article. I read the article and other critics read it as well. The study was uh, a study that, that, uh, that examined genes to determine how genes determine the sex of the baby, the gender of the baby. So we knew that genetics determined whether a baby is born a boy or a girl. We knew that, but we didn't know the pathway. We didn't know exactly how genes did it. So a bunch of UCLA researchers looked at genes and figured out how it happens that a baby becomes a boy or becomes a girl in the womb. That's what the study was. It had to do literally with genitalia formation. And Reuters reported this as, oh, well, this study determines that transgenderism is inborn. It was a complete fabricated. The study had nothing to do with that. But all of these headlines come out and make you think that sexuality is genetically determined. All of those studies have been misrepresented to you or are indeed false. Eventually, the American Psychiatric, uh, what is it? American Psychiatric Association, the APA, uh, came out with this statement. Um, <clears throat> I think I wrote it down here somewhere. Currently, there is renewed interest in searching for biological etiologies, it means causes, for homosexuality. However, to date, there are no replicated scientific studies supporting any specific biological etiology for homosexuality. Never been shown. But I bet half of you walked in thinking that science shows that homosexuality is inborn. It doesn't show that. What science shows is that you can make of your sexuality or that social pressures can make of your sexuality different things. It can go in any number of directions. Sexuality is quite flexible, and science has shown that. Why would God warn against alternate sexualities like he does in Leviticus 18? Well, one of the things that breaks my heart is that if you get into alternate sexualities, you have a higher risk of all sorts of different problems because 
well, I mean, you might be living contrary to your biology, to your structure at least. Um, so studies show that gay men have seven years shorter lifespans because they're just prone to a lot more disease because of the way they go about doing sex. High rates, higher rates of all communicable diseases, especially liver diseases and higher rates of certain cancers. Uh, the promiscuity rates among gay men are astonishing. So one of the things that happens with the sexes is that men tend to be a little bit more sexual aggressive. We are readier more often, and women a little more conservative. It takes them a little longer to get ready. Again, this used to be conventional wisdom. Um, and so they moderate each other. Right? And what it means is that the guy has to do relationship well, right? And, and, and the gal needs to get over insecurities and do relationship well, right? And it used to be a constructive limitation, right? But if it's just guys with guys, all of those moderations fall off. And so studies show it's harder and harder to get recent studies on this because they've all been censored. But the average gay guy has over 400 sexual partners in his life. I've seen some studies that show the average gay guy has 700 sexual partners in his life. And to be considered promiscuous, to be in the upper third, you have to have 1,500 sexual partners in your life if you are a homosexual man. Because there's no moderation male, female there. And that kind of promiscuity creates all sorts of trouble. Mental trouble, emotional trouble, and lots of health problems. That's basically the story of AIDS. AIDS, was, AIDS became AIDS because of the hyper-promiscuity uh, among uh, gay men, as viruses do. I won't explain the viro viro virology uh, there. Uh, but gay, uh, homosexual people are 20 times more likely to suffer antisocial personalities disorder, 15 times higher rates of eating disorder, 500% more suicidal. Transgenders are something like 1,100% more suicidal. Uh, significantly higher occurrence of depression, anxiety disorder, contact disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and substance abuse. And these trends are consistent across cultures whether they be tolerant societies or intolerant societies. Right? The trends hold true, which means that the trends are innate to the condition, not to the society around. All right, I'll stop there. But what I'm talking about is just I'm, just, I'm just trying to speak some truth into the air and to convince you that there is a truth and a grace about sexuality. Right? Uh, gay... Alternate sexualities are challenging, right? They're not healthy. God is very, very clear about this. You know what else God is clear about? God is clear that he accepts everyone. That's the grace part. And in a gracious church, we would talk about this easily and openly. This is where I am sexually. What do you think some healthy choices would be for me? Oh, that's a great conversation. Let's just ask the Lord to speak into that. And that would be my advice for anyone. Wherever you are in terms of your sexuality or your sexual behavior, I would just say, well, here's a step. Why don't you just believe that you can change anything about yourself and then ask God if there's anything he wants you to change? And then I and a couple dozen other people here are able to speak quite confidently and testify to you stories of change. Stories of change. And that's the message that I would love for the church to carry into the world. Oh, there's a truth about this. Let's not pretend. But there's a grace about this. Let's accept each other and be helpful. 
And there's a power from God that lets us become what we should become. Is that clear? Helpful? Let's pray. Well, wherever we're coming from, Lord, wherever we are, I pray that we would not be dominated by the tides of the world, but that we would navigate the currents of the Lord, that we would be people of truth and people who have the courage to be gracious. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, give people freedom this morning, freedom to be human beings, not robots or puppets. I bless you to be actual individuals. In Christ's name, everybody says...